Hey folks, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers. As you may have noticed, it's election season, and so here at the show, we thought we'd dust off something with a bit of an electoral flourish to it. It ain't quite all the king's men, but it ain't far off. This week, we're talking about the Coen Brothers 2000 film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. But currently, Matt, I am in lovely Lancaster, PA. Shoutouts to Lancaster Seminary for hosting me this week. And I am in a dorm room deep in the uh, center of the school. I would say go mascot of Lancaster Seminary if I knew that they had a mascot or what it was. The Crusaders, I think. Okay, go Crusaders. <laughs> I feel weird saying that. <laughs> Folks, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. We watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, and, you know, as people who like movies. Then we gather with a conversation with our guest. This week, our guest Steve Bragaw has asked us to go watch Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, and so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask him what O Brother has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with O Brother for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be October 30th, the 31st Sunday of Ordinary Time. And finally, in our third segment, Postlude will take a second to just share another preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Steve Bragaw is visiting professor of politics at Washington and Lee University, just across the mountains from me. He's also an election junkie, and those of us in Central Virginia have gotten to know him on the radio or on local network election night coverage. So we thought that now, two weeks before election day, we needed a little political insight even for our own humble show. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, guys. Uh, I don't know if this is the the greatest moment of my life, personally, professionally, but I'm really excited to be here. Uh, and thanks, Matt and Adam, for having me on. Yeah, well, don't make the conclusion too quickly, Steve. We still got a whole show out of it. Just like, it might be. It, just like, yeah. yeah, don't make a premature decision. <laughs> so, Steve and Matt, the film, O Brother, Where Out Thou, gives credit uh, to Homer, the Greek bard. The Coen brothers, tongue firmly in cheek, claim that their movie is a modern take on the Odyssey, with Ulysses Everett McGill trying to return home, having escaped from a Mississippi chain gang. In tow are Pete and Delmer, two slack-jawed yokels who are promised a fortune by Everett if they all escape the chain gang together. While the story bears some passing resemblance to the Odyssey, there's a cyclops and some sirens and a wife being courted by a new suitor. The real muse of O Brother is Preston Sturgis, who gives the film its name from one of his movies. Sturgis is responsible for 1930s screwball comedies with fast-talking protagonists with outsized vocabularies and magnificently intricate sentences. Sturgis's movies are fun, episodic romps that betray typical conventions of what count as narrative. Similarly, O Brother is one part political satire, one part love story, one part musical, one part treasure hunt. O Brother is a lot of things and isn't any one thing. So Steve, given all the genres this movie likes to assume, what parts struck you as relevant to ministry and relevant to our current lives as people pressed up against an election? 
justify O Brother as valuable for our work in the church and our lives as citizens? Well, well, thanks. You know, it's if this was an ordinary year, I would figure for a show like this, there's lots of great movies that you could do. But this isn't an ordinary year. I mean, this is, it's hard. I, I'll tell you, it's, I cannot, can't imagine for, uh, for you guys in the ministry, uh, for, for, for folks, uh, the, the good men and women of the church, um, you know, what this must be like. But I can just know from my side of the desk, this is hard, right? This has been a hard year. Uh, because this is really different. And there's a lot of things which are really kind of toxic about this year. And one of the things I was really kind of thinking about this uh, and just kind of thinking about the show today, and it occurred to me, uh, just the number of people on Facebook that I've blocked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the number of people just uh, even after the, the the last debate, which was the other night, the other people, just my own church. I'm like, you know, I don't want to hear from you guys right now. Uh, I mean, at this point, I'll, I'll totally confess this to you guys. Uh, I'm not even talking to my own parents right now, right? You know, the sort of like, yeah, hey, how things are going or anything like this, but it's just the sense of like, what is wrong? And so it really kind of registered me as this theme. It's like, how do I find my way home? And so I've been trying to pray on this week. How do I, you know, how do I find my way back? And, and thinking about this in the classroom and getting the students thinking, it's like, okay, the election's going to come, but this is one of these elections, which is not, you know, the day after election, we can just go about on and business as usual. This one's going to leave a mark. Right. You know, if we can, quote, invoke Tommy boy. Right. You know, this one, this one's going to leave a mark. Um, so how do how do we find our way home? And, and so, of course, then that you go out, of, you know, how do you find your way home? The Odyssey. And then, oh, brother, where art thou? Right. And, and this wonderful thing. So there's one dimension of this, which is this sort of notion of thinking about ourselves as citizens, thinking about ourselves um, as, as seekers. And, you know, how do we find our way home here? Um, but the other dimension about this, which is so important, that really kind of watching the movie again just really kind of lit a nerve. Because I was at the gas station the other day here in Central Virginia, and there was a guy in a pickup truck, and he had the, the you know the Trump stickers in the back, and he was wearing a red baseball hat, and it was the Make America Great Again hat. And I was just you know it kind of got under my nerves a little bit until he was turning around, and I recognized in the back of his uh, the back of his red hat was a cross. And at first I was thinking it was like a motorcycle gang thing. And then I saw him recognize as like, listen, I know what the heck cr- that, that cross is. That's the symbol of the Klan. Mm. And it was small, and it had the little Confederate flag on it. But that was the, that you know Southern you know Southern Poverty Law Center. You know exactly what that symbol is. And to then watch this movie and recognize, you know, it's what's Faulkner's old uh, phrase: uh, "The past is never dead. It's not even past." Uh, that there's an important dimension of this movie, which is you look at the current election right now. And there's yeah, there's social media, you know the new, you know the fact that the front man of this movement's a New York billionaire or billionaire in quotes, right? Allegedly. Allegedly, right? Twenty-four years ago, this was Ross Perot, right? Twenty years before, twenty-four years before that, this same movement. This is George Wallace and the American Independent Party, right? Sure. Uh, 20, you know, 20 years before that, this was Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats. And 20 years before that, right, or 15 years before that, this was the Southern, American Southern populism uh, served up as, uh, as it's seen in the movie, right? And so I think the lesson for the church here, first of all, is when you look at the sort of question of the symbols, the imagery, but also like the, the, the lives of people of faith. That American Southern American populism sounds a lot like the liberation of Exodus, the, the liberation narrative of Exodus, but it's not. 
it, Southern American populism has always been how to better serve Pharaoh, right? The American Civil Rights Movement is the narrative of Exodus acted out. But Southern American populism has always been in this how to serve Pharaoh better in the end. And this movie, in its political satire, lovingly and viciously serves up that, that story to us. And um, we have to sit and eat it in cold because we're living through it today. Matt, as you watched O Brother and as you listened to Steve describe our current political situation and its historical roots, roots that are made evident in the movie, while also served up as satire and parody, how do you uh, read this movie as someone both a citizen and a minister trying to make his way through both this country and this church? Sorry, could you ask me a slightly larger question <laughs> first? I feel like that's too small and pedantic. So, I, I mean, one of the things that struck me when Steve was talking at the beginning, especially, was just about the kind of emotional weight of this year and this election cycle. And as a pastor and as a pastor currently working in a church, I don't get to publicly endorse candidates, not from the pulpit and not on this show. But it, I think it's obvious for anyone to say that we're carrying a certain amount of weight with us. But one of the things that struck me as I was watching this film, which is political satire, but it's also in a way that I think we also get from the Coens and Hale Caesar, this kind of bit on all the different ways, all the different um, layers of story and imagery and symbol that we put onto our lives. So our brother where I thought was a story about a guy trying to go home to see his family, I guess, kind of, that gets layered on top of it, all of this kind of mythological interpretation through Ulysses. It gets layered on top of it, this kind of religious theological interpretation. There's a whole lot of Christian imagery and symbolism in here. It gets layered on top of it, this political layer having to do with 30s Southern populism, as Steve was talking about. Uh, and it's not entirely clear to me that... I mean, those layers are so obvious, they're put as kind of low-hanging fruit for the interpreter to grab. Um, it seems to me that one of the things that the film is trying to do is get us to think critically about the very act of putting those layers of meaning onto us in the first place, which then kind of strikes me. I mean, there's a way to talk about that in the church, to be sure, but it strikes me in, in the election season, too, that one of, the, one of the reasons I feel the weight of this election season is that I have so adopted the election as the story of who I am and who my community is in 2016. That um, because I am so plugged into social media and because I'm following so closely that the election has this huge force and power over me, it, you know, it... it shapes my moods in and out day to day it has deep kind of emotional hooks into me because it's the kind of narrative layer that i've chosen for myself uh and i and i wonder what the you know in some ways i think part of the responsibility of the church at that point is just to help people remember that there are that they are part of other stories that aren't just this one um that there are other layers to them um, even though this one seems to have a very loud megaphone right now. Well, let's talk about that. Let's what do you talk think, about Adam? that megaphone for a second, right? Because 
there's something really interesting about um, mass communication and a point that being about mass communication being made in this movie where Papio Daniel gets the radio, right? He, the first time you meet him, he's going to a radio station in order to do the Papio Daniel hour. And he yells at his entourage, we mass communicate. <laughs> and it's, it's brilliant. Um, and, uh, and I feel like the Coens are recognizing the ways in which the megaphone that you use can place you in positions of power and, um, and in the houses of so many different people. What I'm struck by in our current electoral cycle is that, the, uh, that I follow this election almost totally on Twitter. And that is a, um, a group that I have curated myself so that it is just one large echo chamber. There's very few that, um, that I read or follow on Twitter who would disagree with my own political views. Um, there isn't that moment of having only one or two radio stations, three or four television statement stations. Um, I, I feel like in some ways we've fractured um, so uh, so intricately that we actually don't even hear people who disagree with us any longer. Well, that that's definitely true, Adam. But there's another dimension of this too, because I think Twitter is a huge dimension of this, even more so than Facebook is that the ability of the leader, whether you're talking about a religious leader or a political leader or someone who tries to be both, to communicate directly with people, the way in which uh, the Trump fans that I know, right, when Trump tweets or, the, you know, and, and like retweets someone, it's it's kind of this this paroxysm of joy that you, you, and you, you can you can kind of understand kind of like the with, with the 30s and, uh, you know, FDR used the radio very effectively, but let's remember, you know, in Europe, who was also using this mass communication very effectively, and it took us a while to be able to differentiate. It really took rock and roll and Elvis for us to be able to say, okay, you can have this mass spectacle of the, of, of the, the use of radio and then of what becomes TV to kind of it become entertainment and separate politics out. The part of what Hitler was really good at, Lenny Riefenstahler was really excellent, was using sure. new, new forms of communication to directly appeal to people and push their buttons, not even push their buttons, like put the finger right into the brain and touch the cerebral cortex. Um, and the, the frenzy that that has and the danger, right, is people of faith and people in the church um, you can almost think of someone if there was, you know, someone like, I don't know, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Where you would say, uh, you know, we need to be careful about this. We need to worry about this because this is the type of thing uh, that, you know, can look and sound like a prophetic voice, but it's not because it's in the service of power and not in the service of God. And that's a very dangerous thing. Steve, I'd be really curious to hear you talk a little bit about the distinctions, if there are any for us, between the two major political figures that are in this movie, between Papio Daniel and, uh, and Homer Stokes. I mean, we've been talking mostly about Papi, who has the technological savvy, I guess, um, and he certainly knows well enough to kind of join in with the crowd, singing with the music at the end, which revives his career. Um, he's, the, he's a certain kind of populist. Um, and there's 
certainly a, a degree of cynicism about him on the part of the filmmakers, but he's not Homer Stokes, who who shows up as the the reform candidate for the little guy, right? And also and also t- turns out to be part of a certain super secret organization whose name he's not going to speak here. I mean, t- talk to me a little bit about how those two figures sit with you as historian and, and as someone trying to figure out this year too. Oh no, it's, it's very important. I mean, and, and you juxtapose those with, uh, with George Clooney's character, who's kind of the, uh, the skeptical fool, right? Is this the skeptical, uh, the skeptical fool on the journey through the wilderness, which is actually a really old character in American literature, right? You know, going back to, uh, Washington Irving and Mark Twain, of course, made that character sure. so so well, and so and Frank Capra does as well. So I kind of was watching this movie, and I was thinking of sort of of uh, not skeptical fools of Frank Capra, but also more the skeptical naive, right? The uh, the 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 Jefferson Smith type of character, the Mister the Mister, uh, uh, or even uh, George uh, the the George character, and It's a Wonderful Life is a bit of a skeptical fool. Uh, but but so how uh, this sort of notion of the the thing you should be afraid of uh, that that's the kind of the warning here is precisely that the sort of the man who's speaking for the people the man who's speaking for the little guy with the, the reform right uh, is is what really do they want power for and what are they trying to use it for versus the kind of the Pappy Daniel who's the he's the popular he's the difference between the populist and the popularizer right uh, Pappy the Pappy Daniel character you're skeptical about right okay he's slick Right, he's he's corrupt. Right, he's the compromiser, but he's kind of he's kind of fashioning himself in the middle. He's a man a little bit ahead of his time, and in the end, his heart turns out to be in the right place. Whereas the person you have to watch out is the one who is speaking for the people, and he's the tribune for the man. Right, and of course, in the in the context of the movie, he's the he's the wizard of the clan, and that's how the that's how the clan worked in the first half of the 20th century. And you look at this type of character; it's it's a dangerous character. Right, you can go back to Alcibiades and the uh, and, and and Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War. You can go right through Aristotle. Right, what are the types of characters you have to watch out for in democracies? And it's the person who's flattering the people by speaking as the man of the people, the tribune of the people. That's the character you always have to watch out for. That's the scary one, because in who are they trying to serve? Um, but that's, of course, a theme straight out of the Gospels, right? Who you know, who is who's actually serving? Uh, you know, what, what power are they actually serving? And that's the thing that's actually really disappointed me uh, to a degree, but also not, unfortunately, not surprised me at all of watching Amer- a lot of American evangelical leaders who, you know, if, if it's one thing, you know, to sell out your soul, right? You know, when, when this, when Satan turned to Jesus and offered him the world and Jesus said, no, right. To, you know, for Satan to offer you three seats in the Supreme court in return for it. And, uh, and so, oh yeah, I'll take that. Right. Um, it, it, I reminded of that, you know, the great line from, uh, you know, man for all seasons when, uh, um, uh, when, uh, Thomas Moore says to, you know, it's one thing to sell out, you know, your soul for the world, but to sell your soul for whales, um, is kind of like the same thing. You sell your soul for, you know, two or three seats on the Supreme court. Um, it's not worth it. So as I was watching this, I, I think in our current political uh climate papio daniel homer stokes um are interesting types the 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 fast-talking con man of everett mcgill who thinks he knows perhaps more than he does but actually does have a big heart 
in the center of him. Then there's Pete, who um, is, wants more power than he should probably ever get, um, and is is too dumb to realize that he's dumb. Uh, and then there's Delmer. And I find him to be the beating heart of the movie in many ways. Well, the joke there is because Tim Blake Nelson is the only is this the story of this. Tim Blake Nelson's the only one uh, on the set who actually read uh, right. the Odyssey. Right. I also think Tim Blake Nelson is the heart of everything he's well, in. Well, true. Yeah. Like, I mean, I just I, I have a big soft I, spot I do for too, Tim but Blake I think Nelson, that there is something. So. If this were if this were a video if this were a video podcast right now, we'd have the Tim Blake Nelson picture with like the beating heart, right? Right. Here. Absolutely. Yeah. My kind of teenage fan but, girl but crush. But so, so we're Tim talking about yeah, okay. you know the people who are willing you know to sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, to use another biblical story. Um, there's a moment early mm. in the movie where um, Delmer gets baptized and he comes back and he says, I am forgiven. And you get the sense that Mm -hmm. Delmer's never been very smart, but he was forgiven for robbing some sort of convenience store or bank or something. um, And that he hasn't always been a good person. But from that moment, he has such deep affection and care and does good things. There's a moment where Big Dan, the Bible salesman, comes to steal all of uh, their money. And Everett is uh, too easily flattered by Big Dan. And that's his downfall. And even when Big Dan is about to beat them senseless with a, you know, a big stick, Everett doesn't know what's going on. But Delmer does. He catches on much quicker than everybody else. And I wonder if Delmer really is the sort of the one who keeps his scruples and his morals against all odds. And in doing so, is able to see when something is going wrong, to see evil in their midst, to recognize that uh, the world is not right and is not being put right. He also has the best line in the movie, which is, I think we're going to need a wizard, which is my favorite thing I've ever heard. <laughs> well, he's the only one whose whose motivations I actually trust. Because well, is, uh, is, is he almost like the Zacchaeus character? Is he, or is he kind of the, the he's just he just has a simple faith in a way? Well, well, we get this. There's a hint at this one moment. He can he t- he says that uh, that what he wanted to do with the prize money was go back and get his farm back. Because the bank is foreclosed on the farm, right? So he's this is this hint of kind of real depression era economic inequality that that Delmer just gets it just for this one second. Whereas you know I don't really trust Everett's motivations. He gets back to his wife, but that doesn't actually seem to quell him. I mean, it seems like he actually is the adventurer and the wanderer, and Pete just kind of wants wants power as you said i think delmer has got he, he's the only one whose motivation kind of grabs me in a way and i think that's part of why i instinctively trust him from that point well there's that great line in the theater right where uh, everett turns to him and said you know uh delmer you ever been with a woman and and he said i've got to get the farm back first i can't think of that right, right? you yeah. know and it's yeah. like Wow, that's this is a guy, right? Whose 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 motivations are in the uh, or, or tr- this character is true to the story, yeah. but uh, 
but it's important too, you know, because Big Dan, right, the the Bible salesman, Cyclops Klansman, right? This is a character is important to not let go by because and there's that one quote, right? You know, that's right, the word of God, which during uh, you know, let me let me add it these uh, is darn you know the, all right, back up on this one. Big Dan's quote when he's talking about being the Bible salesman, right? In these days of, you know, woe and want, right? People are looking for answers and Big Dan sells the only book that's got them, right? You know, it's this very powerful metaphor, right? For this, that this movie is a warning, right? In times like this that we're in, that there's a warning, right? That the, that the, the church and the people of the church, right, should be paying attention to, which is, uh, you know, the person selling the book with all the answers and the simple ones is not necessarily the person who's got your best interests apart. And and yet, as a, a, a yeah, I think the movie is very cynical about him, and rightly so. Uh, but it's also got this kind of interesting Christian theological heart to it that doesn't feel entirely cynical. I mean, it, it, it has this, of course, this beautiful baptism imagery at the beginning, which seems to have real uptake, as Adam was pointing out. And then it has, I mean, I think the last 20 minutes of this film are really interesting from a Christian theological perspective, too, where they, they, they're on stage, they get their official pardon from Papio Daniel, but they haven't met the last enemy, right? They still, yes, to keep going on the quest to find the ring, and when he goes to find the ring, he runs into the, the bounty hunter with the shades, it's right out of Cool Hand Luke, um, who, uh, he's, he's not... Uh, a legal character he's a theological one and he is kind of he's he's death incarnate in this really profound way you have the guy singing a lonesome valley there um this is this is the reckoning with um with the higher power uh that then gets interrupted um he he, you know uh, Everett drops to his knees to pray. He has this long, very sincere-sounding prayer, at which point the whole thing gets interrupted by this apocalyptic event of of the flooding caused by the, the formation of the dam. And it all gets interpreted, it all gets explained away in very human terms, but it's pretty theologically rich stuff that I wouldn't hesitate to use from the sermon from a pulpit on Sunday morning to get at some of those kind of yeah, images. Yeah, see, my problem with the, the, the character of the, the sheriff, the bounty hunter, is great, but I couldn't get past that he's also George's boss from Seinfeld. <laughs> and I just pull him up here on IMDb. It's Daniel Von Bergen, right? I was like, wait, that's what was bothering me about this. And I keep, uh, you know, when he, he's hunting them down, I keep, you know, he's, he's looking for George's, uh, you know, the, uh, the donation to the, the, the human fund. And I don't know. It just, <laughs> it, it, broke, it broke the suspension of disbelief for me. Fair enough. I just always I see the guy from Cool Hand Luke with the yeah. Bonnie Oh yeah, yeah. Oh sure. Right. Sure. So I I mean the lasting and perhaps most influential part of this movie was its soundtrack. And continues to be. Sure. And so let's talk yeah. briefly about how music functions in this movie. I mean, because really it is a love letter to the music um of the American experiment and all of the various different American musics, right? Um Music in this movie is, on the one hand, this driver of mobility. It allows them to um, to find clemency from the government, um, but it's in, as an agency of salvation. But it's also born of the people trying to make sense of the world. So, I mean, the very beginning of the movie begins with a chain gang singing their work song. Um, 
and really those work songs are the beginning of American music, um, at least American democratic music. Uh, and then you have Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is the, the credit sequence, which is this moment of hobo eschatology, <laughs> where the next town, the next opportunity, the next episode will be better than the last. It is uh, the manifestation of, of an American optimism. Uh, let's, uh, let's just say hobo eschatology would be a name you. of an awesome band. <laughs> I already trademarked it. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but it's also a, 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 a movie with lament songs all over the place. So the song yeah. that is so popular that everyone wants to dance to is a song called I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow. Uh, and so the Delta Blues and folk songs and sacred hymns and bluegrass and work songs, they're all present in this movie trying to, and they all have different types of agency in the movie, I think. Um, and what struck me is that in this movie, and I think in our political history, the powerful need the poor oftentimes for their songs. And I'm using songs sort of figuratively for the stories that they tell, the the, the creative sure. work that they create that they make, um, and it's because people in power tend to write terrible songs. Um, they can't really capture the populist uh, experience, uh, and so they need the creative class in order to sell themselves. And so I've been taking delight every time I hear a musician send a cease and desist letter to a politician for using their songs. You know, uh, it's just so it's so awesome. And I love that Bob Dylan hasn't responded to the Nobel Prize Committee yet. If he blows yeah. if he blows off the Nobel Prize, that would be so I love awesome. it. I, I want it to happen so bad. Um, I just want to point out that like two weeks ago on this podcast, you were you were going on and on about the majesty of you two. And now you're telling me about how powerful people write bad songs. I, wait, but Bono was like the Bono was like the, like, oh, but their best songs when like, they were just like a bunch basically of, I mean, hosting Davos in his you, backyard at this point. The, I, and... I, whoa, whoa, whoa! I never talked about the majesty of U two. I actually said U two is like subpar. It doesn't actually speak for anybody except Bono. That's the problem. Why? That's why no one will ever cover a U two song. The 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 the, the, uni the universal Bono experience. Well, you know, there's another dimension of this too, and and is is that uh, it reminds you of. You know, the old when old time music was new, right? The sort of the creative energy that comes mm -hmm. in, right? As you know, the the banjo is you know slams into the fiddle, the the Scots Irish fiddle, and the Spanish guitar, and creating this sort of bluegrass and the the the, the you get the, the sort of the legend of the Delta blues and the the, the uh, guitar player who sells his soul to the devil. You've got the 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 work songs, and this it's just the freshness and creativity, which is in some respects, then you know the whole Hamilton phenomena. Right, you know, and and kind of getting the sense of telling a very old story with a new way through this sort of uh, mashing together of 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 this of this of this authentic music sort of creates lends an authenticity to something that you've done before, which we we're supposed to be doing every week in church, right? You know, yeah. we we take the liturgy of the Eucharist, and you know, by raising our voices and 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 we bring that back to life. And sometimes we get so, you know, we get stuck into the, the formality of it. You need something like, oh, brother, where art thou? Or Hamilton to uh, be able to see a very old story and suddenly recognizing it's, it's new and alive and it's energetic and it becomes part of you. 
Um, so there's a death and rebirth. And to part that. of what happens in the film is that those lament songs are, are not. I mean, they, they can be pretty dishonest in this movie. I mean, they, they the the guys go to the recording studio and lie to the blind recor- recording guy and tell, tell about who they are and their racial identity. Um, they lie about how many of them there are so they can get paid more. Um, and then they that that song gets really popular even though nobody actually knows who these guys are it gets picked up by papio daniel in the end who jumps on stage to dance with them entirely opportunistically it's it's there's a little bit of a cynical read on the kind of use of that lament towards some end but i think the film still says at least it's not you are my sunshine which is the song that is promoted by the homer stokes character and is sung and 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 is and is kind of paraded around um, by uh, you know very angelic looking young girls singing it, but is but is a lie. I mean, it's so it's it, it, there's different kinds of deceit going on there. With like, look, this lament, yeah, you know, it's not entirely theirs, and it's a little dishonest, and it, but at least it gets at something that's close to real, whereas. This kind of blind, cheap, crassy stuff um, masks the real danger somehow. Yeah, so, I mean, it's politics, right? It's not whether or not they're lying or being truthful. It's how, what are the measures of duplicity present in anything that is said? Sure. So, uh, let's move on to preaching for a moment. Uh, our second segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we're looking at the lectionary passages for Year C, which is the 31st Sunday of Ordinary Time, October 30th. Steve, as you look at these passages, Habakkuk, Isaiah, there's the, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, what stands out to you as, um, and, and has been highlighted by watching Oh Brother, Where Out Thou? Oh, it's definitely the, 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 the vigilance of the, of the prophets, right, of Habakkuk and Isaiah uh, here, you know, the, the, so the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth per, uh, perverted, right? I will st- and then Habakkuk saying, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart, right? You know, it's this, it's this beautiful imagery, right? Which is the reminder for, for those of you know, people who are being called to bear witness in their lives that at moments like this, when you see so many leaders you know, surging to grab power, to compromise their, their principles, to grab onto power. Instead of saying, is your job to grab onto power or are you being called to do is to witness and bear witness, which means watch, right, um, and, and be vigilant uh, and be aware of, what, of what's going on, right? Um, so that's sort of one dimension of this. And then the other is, you know, the sort of liturgical calendar of the year, right? You were, we're heading into, you know, traditionally this sort of the period where we hear different, different variations on the apocalypse and the, the, uh, the prophets, you know, talking about, you know, the unjust, you know, the, the unjust rule last week, you know, the unjust rule or these different types of things. And what are we called to do? We're called to watch and to wait and to have faith and to pray and, cognizant aware of that soon it will be advent and we're then we'll be called to wait and to watch and to recognize that the deliverance doesn't come from us the deliverance doesn't come from us organizing to seize power the deliverance comes from us being faithful and be, uh, individually faithful as communities and uh, 
and that the work is going to be done by someone um, who has a much better sense of what needs to be done right. than us. Matt, as you think about the lectionary passages, what stands out to you? Well, I thought a little bit about the Habakkuk too, just because of the kind of the big line there about making the vision plain and writing it on tablets, as we've talked a little bit about the work of technology in this film and the work of radio. And I think there's some, there's some interesting interplay there. But mostly I, I, I was thinking about Zacchaeus um, because of this midget that Homer Stokes carries around with him uh, as, as he's on the campaign trail. And it's the, it's the midget that he has because he proclaims himself to be fighting for the little man, right? And so he has this kind of prop of a dude. Uh, and I, I, it's interesting because Zacchaeus is a, is a little man. He's short of stature. He can't see over the crowds. Uh, but he's also a, a very wealthy, privileged man. He's a rich man um, who is a tax collector, so he's working within the system. He's got a lot of authority. Um, I think it's really easy to see either of these figures as being kind of as either the way that the film or the text uses this idea of little as being a way of thinking about their being oppressed, that either Zacchaeus is oppressed because he's too small to get his place in the crowd, or that in this kind of broader political sense of the little man who is on the outside, who is the midget who can't get in. Um, but I think the gospel story gets a little more complicated than that because obviously they're really actually both deeply broken characters. Stokes is terrible, as we've said. Zacchaeus is implicated in a pretty nasty system. And the, the point is, isn't just that Jesus offers welcome to um, people who are oppressed, although that would certainly be true. The point of the story is that Jesus offers welcome to folks who are incredibly corrupt. Um, and and there's still and there's grace anyway, even for folks who like Zacchaeus, despite their small stature, may be quite powerful and not always necessarily using that power for good. Anyway, so that's I, if I were going to preach in that film, I'm I'm thinking about Zacchaeus. I'm thinking about the little man and the fight for the reform. Right, and I think that I I mean to to tie to those your both both of your ideas together. There, um, there is this sense that with a two party system and an electoral system that we currently engage in, we get stuck in these binaries and we just think, oh, the solution is just to flip the binary, right? Um, that uh, that the little man becomes the big man or the, um, the people who are empowered just need to be brought down. Um, and what I'm, what I'm struck by in the uh, Zacchaeus story is that Jesus seems to be operating according to different terms than hegemony and counter-hegemony. Uh, the binary of dominant and subordinate. I mean, those exist as realities in our world, and I think we should uh, should recognize that and never ignore it. At the same time, I think it's appropriate to recognize that also Jesus is trying to do this third thing that's going to actually exit us out of some of that. Um, and I see something in the Isaiah passage, too, that is interesting to me, given the political climate of last night. So last night, uh, Cardinal James Dolan of New York, the Cardinal in New York, presided over the Al Smith dinner. And this is an event that happens every four years before a presidential election, where important New York and Washington bigwigs dress up in a white 
Thai formal wear dinner, and then they get to gently poke fun at each other with some of the most benign jokes. And as I watched that this was happening last night, I was reminded of the strength of of political theater. As everyone played dress up, it was all just so apparent. It's it's the, so under- it's, the, it's the White House correspondence dinner meets the New York Irish, and it's uh it, it's 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 a pretty distinctive American event. Yeah, and it's disgusting because under the guise of charity, everyone enacts this piece of decadent political theater of the Gilded Age that exposes politics that it, for what it is at least now, which is basically for the rich and everyone is in on it. The religious elite are in on it. The business interests are in on it. The political powerful are in on it. And I couldn't help, number one, hearing Pappy embrace this theater as a means of staying in power. But I couldn't also forget God crying out and saying to the people of Israel, I hate your solemn festivals and your rallies and your debates. And if you've got a problem with that, then you come at me. Like, you want to debate? I'll debate you. Let me hear your best dumb talking point and your best policy proposal. And in that Isaiah passage, I think God is trying to at least expose reality for what it is so much of the time, which is political theater that tramples on people who don't have access uh, to a role in that theater. Rant over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well see i i you know for me and this is because i come from new york irish whenever i see the cardinal in that i think this would make a great scene in a ghostbusters movie right yeah thinking of the cardinal in ghostbusters one right you know that and uh and not to like there's the you know the line in there for isaiah talking about the scarlet right um and your skins are like scarlet that's the old former catholic author boy in me no longer catholic it says yeah right um but yeah there's there's right you know it, it's it's something which is you know the ritual you know we thought of this yeah for al smith we thought of this during the debates right there's a ritual to this which you know someone who teaches this stuff i've come to hate it right i come to hate it because it's 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 not that it's not even authentic is that the ritual becomes the point Right. The ritual has made it so that we lost the meaning of this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's one other thing here, just kind of looking at this in terms of the psalm, that this might be something good for uh, preachers out there. Just one part of the psalm. Right. My zeal consumes me. Right. The whole the whole lines. My zeal consumes me because my forgo- my foes forget your words. But there might be something here from a perspective of self-care. I've been trying mm. to teach my students this because mm. I've been trying to do it myself, right? I, I, I confess, I, I didn't watch the first half of the debate on Wednesday, sat with a beer and watched the baseball game because I just couldn't take it um, anymore. And so this sort of notion with this, uh, this election in particular, that it's so easy, right? particularly with the social media, the impact on us, the way the radio had the impact in the 30s. It's so easy for your zeal to consume you. And that's just, it's not healthy. It's just not healthy. Uh, and it's and it's a serious problem. I mean, I the the I preached about this a little bit last week. The American Psychiatric Association has um, identified the election as being one of the top three stressors for Americans during this cycle, along with like work, money, and some. I, it, basically, it's it's work, money, and employment, or something like that. And the election has noodled its way into the top three. So it, it becomes a psychiatric problem. And it, for me, it. it I, th- I think we're saying the same thing that I was trying to articulate more generally earlier talking about this film is that there are a lot of different 
stories we can tell about who we are at any given moment. You can tell it mythologically or theologically or politically. And maybe what the problem with this season is that we only tell this electoral political story over and over 25 hours a day for so many weeks on end. And we need to figure out, and churches especially, places and ways of telling other kinds of stories about who we are so that we don't just explode. And that's to me as much to anybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that is something that is definitely there. And it's a fatigue, though, you know, in terms of what we want to do here, thinking the audience, you know, what we're thinking about here with the podcast, which is this is the this is supposed to be the message of the gospel. Right. You know that and not just in the sense of, you know, one of the, the prayers I love in the book of common prayer right? in returning and rest. Right. We shall be saved. Right. Uh, that for the prayer for quiet reflection. Uh, but this sort of notion of death, not just of death and rebirth, but of this of this idea of like, what is this about? Right. Is this about the ritual? Is this about the serving of, of power? Is this about the, uh, you know, the rendering on to Caesar? Is this about rendering on to uh, the power of the religious authorities? Uh, or is this about authentic witness? Right. And, you know, part of me, you know, the first debate was kind of posted on Twitter to sort of a a little a gif of uh of uh the psychologist from arrested development um the uh uh tobias right crying in the shower right and there was like james madison during the debate right and then part of me was almost kind of wishing you know that someone you know like madison you know sort of madison and jefferson reenactors would come out like turn their cords into whips and, and just sort of drive everyone off the stage or uh, into the you know the uh the uh in in the in the pundit room and just saying look what are we doing here right we're analyzing you know who you know said what and it's like what what are we doing to the country right and how are we going to come together here uh on this uh afterwards uh which is sort of the american problem of of the fact that we're not a nation defined by geography or race or religion we're a nation defined by ideas and uh, and if if that's the only thing we have, and if we allow ourselves to get pulled apart by that, if we allow ourselves to become so polarized, uh, just because this has worked for two hundred years, right? The Roman Republic went longer than our experiment yet. We haven't outlived the Roman Republic yet. There's no guarantee it's going to continue if we lose this ability to find um, this connection. So that's to me one of the things which actually was uplifting about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Was uh, as much as Papio Daniels looking like he's going to be the villain, and he turns out to be the he's kind of the hero, right? In the sense that he finds the way to you know keep us together and and kind of move the story uh, along. So sometimes the hero uh, emerges at the end. Sometimes the skeptical fool is the wise one, and sometimes the Bible salesman, right? Sometimes the Bible salesman is the one who is the 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 uh, the the real villain that you have to worry about. Well, I think that probably ought to wrap up our time with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and our time with Steve, too. Steve Bergaw is a visiting professor of politics at Washington and Lee and was very kind to grace us with his presence this afternoon. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So, uh, 
longtime listeners of the show will know that I get fascinated by changes in like film technology stuff. Uh, and the the new one out right now is the new film from Ang Lee, who is a filmmaker who I think uh, gets uh, under discussed in the pantheon of great contemporary filmmakers. But this is a separate discussion. The new his new movie is called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. And I know almost nothing about it except that it's about a, a soldier who's getting lauded for uh, an act of valor and service. But uh, I know. I, let me interject for just a second. Fine. The book I think is the I read it. It's probably the best war satire of the last twenty years. Okay. I have no idea what the movie's gonna be like. So the the movie is interesting to me because of the te- technology because it has been shot at 120 frames per second in 4K resolution. Um, and the quote is that they were using also two separate 3D cameras precisely mounted to capture action like a pair of eyes, unquote. So for a reference, uh, standard films at 24 frames a second. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Peter Jackson put out The Hobbit at 48 frames a second, and people kind of hated it. Uh, this was an unusual thing because for forever you could only do it at 24 frames a second because it was a mechanical projector and now that it's digital you can begin to mess with that but at 48 the movie looked kind of artificially smooth and like bad video um and i actually really ha- I, I i sought out the theater to watch it specifically and i just hated it it looked kind of awful apparently it looked better in later hobbit films but i don't know that because the movie was also so bad that i did not want to go see the later ones um, but so now we've gone from 24 to 48 to 120. And the reviews that are coming in say basically that the movie is incredibly beautiful and also kind of unwatchable. That because it no longer looks cinematic, it's like so pretty and so smooth, it doesn't feel approachable and real. It's kind of impossible for production designers to deal with this either. They, they, it, the 120 exposes everything, so they can't like use a piece of black electronic or black um, tape to cover over a blemish because you'll see the tape. They, they, one guy was talking about how um, he wanted a room that looked like it had had a bunch of layers of paint on it. And usually they would just do that with like one bad layer of paint. But now, he, which it was obvious, he had to go and paint it all these times just so that they could have that effect to it. Um, I, I'm just kind of, I'm really curious about this. I mean, in one sense... Generally speaking, we gradually adjust to these things. And the thing that looks too smooth and artificial to you for the first couple of days will begin eventually to look better. And maybe that's the stuff that Peter Jackson was saying a few years ago when The Hobbit came out, is this is the vanguard and we'll all get there eventually. But I don't know. There's a part of me that gets kind of old and traditional about it too and thinks that there's something that we love about knowing that we're watching something imperfect. And knowing that we're seeing something that isn't as beautiful as maybe it could be. And I, unsurprisingly, I think a little bit about that in the context of worship. About whether or not what we're supposed to do is is put on a beautiful, perfect show. Or whether we're supposed to um, do something that kind of shows the cracks. And the gaps in between the frames. And the places where our imagination gets to work. And I obviously, I, I have my own... Um, my own conceit and my own bias there. But anyway, I'm fascinated by the tech of it and then just painting very broad strokes about the metaphor of it. What about you, Adam? What's bouncing around your head? Yeah, in response to you, I I think you're right. There's part of me that says, 
the problem is not something that can be fixed by more words, you know? Like, I have so many preaching students who think that they can fix their sermons because if they just had more time to preach. And part of me is like, it's not the problem. The problem is you you haven't created something that's like, uh, that's worth preaching yet. And I wonder if, you know, part of The Hobbit problem was that the movie just wasn't very good, too. And, oh, yeah. And and I wondered if Peter Jackson would have gotten more uh, more rope and more leniency if the movie was good. Yeah, I'm you sure know? that's true. And they talk about things like um, the... They talk about this with the Billy Lynn, too. That they realized that they had to scale back on the amount of CGI that they were planning to use because part of the problem with 120 or even 48 was that it was exposing the gaps between the CGI and the and and the um kind of real film stuff um in really drastic ways and you totally see that if you go back to the Hobbit I mean it looks it the it looks terrible it looks like someone has um done kind of fifth grade level Photoshop on the film because it, the the gap between what they can do with the CG and what they can do with the film stock is really drastic, and it only gets worse at 120. Right, yeah. And I think about this, and, I mean, if we took it and just exchanged the medium, like, War and Peace is an unqualified classic and a work of genius, and it's long. But, you know, there are short things, and they did with less words. But at some point, you have to say, like, eh, the problem is that we, like, we need to pack in more information, more pixels into our picture. It's we need to find what the right picture is. I don't know. Right. I, there's part of me that would just rather take the energy, the creative energy, and put it towards story and and frame rather than trying to figure out how to pack it all in. And I think that's a legit critique of Ang Lee too. I mean, I, I I've loved his 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 big masterpieces but i think between this and life of pi which i really liked too but both of these films are really first and foremost exercises in technical achievement uh and less i think first and foremost exercises in narrative uh and character and that's that's always a little bit of a dangerous place to be and one gets a sense too with someone like ang lee like he i know he can do character and story i mean i think i love the Ice Storm, I thought it's so good. Yeah, it's an amazing movie. Um, I and I and I think Brokeback Mountain is is um is damn near a masterpiece. So he could do that stuff. I wonder if if sometimes you get bored. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're that's just it. trying to like raise the bar a little bit. Yeah. So Matt, the, what I wanted to talk about too is um, I, I'm aware that we haven't had very good political satire during this election season, perhaps in a season that needed it the most. Um, here and there, we get it, but like the, the late night shows really, who we asked to do this, haven't done it very well. Uh, and so I've turned to Twitter, and there's one Twitter feed that has cracked me up the entire time, and it's by a guy named Owen Ellickson. Have you been following this at all? No, I'm going to now. Um, uh, the Twitter handle is O-N-L-X-N. Um, and it is just a pure liberal fantasy about um, the Trump campaign. And it's parodied so that Roger Ailes is like a squid beast and Ann Coulter is trying to blow up the world. And um, 
and everyone gets skewered, even Hillary Clinton and her staff, uh, all of the surrogates and Spocks for, um, for Trump are on there. It, it's really funny. And, uh, and I've laughed a lot at it, but it also has begun to like form questions in my mind about preaching, which is, um, we live in this world where there's all these sort of strange play acting we do in culture and, um, and starting with someone like even Stephen Colbert, who played this character for so long. And I mean, you never really knew what was reality, what was fantasy. Um, I don't know how any of that has not filtered well into our preaching. And as I was thinking about this, I remember hearing Fred Craddock preach once. And he started to tell this story about going to his friend's house and meeting their new dog. And the dog, he was told, was rescued from a racetrack after the dog refused to race. And everyone's thinking, like, wow, it's kind of an interesting story. Fred Craddock talking about a dog. And then Craddock then says something like, so I asked him, what happened? And then the dog starts talking to him and answers him. And, <laughs> and so Craddock and this dog begin having this conversation for a few minutes, at which point he makes some point. The dog makes some point. And, of course, it's Craddock making the point and putting it in the dog's mouth, right? No. Um, no, oh, he really had, I mean, he may have really had a conversation with the dog. I mean, but um, the story's made up and it's fantastic, but I was so entranced by the homiletical move and just how it surprised me in the middle of it and yet still worked in the larger frame of the sermon. And so I'm just thinking about, are there ways that we can bring in the fantastical and make up stories to get our point across? I don't generally advise students to make up stories whole cloth unless people know immediately that the story didn't happen. Um, but how do we how do we make up stories to help preach our sermons? We we watch movies and then bring those to bear. Can we be the creative force behind the story and the creative force behind the sermon at the same time? It's not a question that I've been able to answer yet. I think it. I don't know. I, I don't feel comfortable doing it, and it's not because. It's not because I'm worried about whether the congregation is going to know whether it's true or not. It's because I don't think I'm a very good storyteller or story author. Right. Um, so I, I, it's relatively easy for me to take the story of meeting my friend's dog and spin that in, and tell it in a way that gets at something I'm trying to get at for the sermon and shade it however I need to shade it. But um, if I have to invent the friend and the dog, then I feel like I'm not doing what I'm good at doing. I've just never been a fiction author. I've never been able to do that very well. I need something to start with. That's just me. But I suspect it's not just me, though. I suspect that's part of the, the challenge. I mean, I know I have a, a good friend and colleague in our presbytery who um, does a lot of story writing and storytelling and uses that almost kind of garrison healery in his, in his sermons. And I think he does it to quite good effect. Um, and folks kind of have gotten to know his style and, and, and know that that's what they're going to expect. And I've really liked listening to him tell stories when I've had the chance to do it. I, but I just think it's his gift and not mine. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's a matter of giftedness. And I think that there's just, I think there's some social constraints and some medium constraints that we're also adhering to. And I'm just as a question, I think it's, bringing me sent uh closer to the center of what those constraints are and how they've been formed and to what end um and it might be really important that we 
actually don't try and be storytellers and preachers at the same time. I'm trying, uh, and yet there's something to be learned from these stories and used to ends within our preaching lives that leaves me sort of unsatisfied with any answer that I've come up with. Well, Adam, I think that probably about wraps it up for this episode, but we are not quite done. We still need our homework for next time. Next episode, we're going to be joined by the Reverend Mihi Kim Court, who I know is a powerful voice on social media as a writer and blogger and tweeter of all things about the intersection of church and identity and ministry and culture. And here she is to bring her voice to give us our assignment for our next time. Hi, this is Mihi Kim Court. I am a Presbyterian minister and director of UKirk at IU, Indiana University, which is in Bloomington, Indiana. So, Matt and Adam, it was really hard to choose a movie, but I'm looking forward to chatting with you about one of my favorites, one that I actually haven't seen in such a long time because, you know, um, kids work just being so exhausted from adulting. I'm sure that we'll talk about that some more. But anyways, really excited to talk about Garden State, an indie pop film that came out in 2004. It stars Zach Braff and Natalie Portman and is, is generally about returning home and finding yourself with some sprinkles of a kind of dark and quirky rom-com in a Bill Dung's Romanish and Catcher in the Rye kind of way, all set in New Jersey, which is the Garden State. Thanks, guys. Wonderful. Thanks, Mihi. I suspect, Matt, that uh, Zach Braff has gotten a bad rap over the last few years. Every so often, pop culture just kind of turns on someone. I think we might have all done this to old Zach, but we'll see. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I, I don't think I've seen it since it came out. Yeah, it's been at least a decade for me. I mostly think of it as kind of being the paradigm for the um, Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope, and so I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out when we revisit it. Anyway. Right. Good question. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend, write it in your hearts, carve it in your souls. Every little bit helps other folks find the show. Thanks, Adam. Until next time. Thanks, Matt. Go look out at the weather. I believe it's going to be over. I believe my baby gonna quit me Because I can feel it all in my blood